It's the time of year when people start to think about sparkly outfits, jingly bells and embarrassing jumpers. No, I'm not talking about my birthday celebration. It's the December edition of The Garden magazine. In this month's show, we hear all about the joy of Christmas cut flowers to make your house shine during the holiday period. That just becomes a celebration of the seasons that hopefully smells gorgeous and gives you a little floral hug on your Christmas table. We reflect on a column that looks at health and well-being in the garden. For all of us, we do need to have some kind of access and it's been so clear, it just felt so clear this year how important that was. And we discuss a garden that's been designed to be both clever and versatile. I think people see a lot of serious gardens and so we expect gardens to be seriously designed. Whereas actually, when they have children, they accept that actually maybe things could be a bit more playful. And we discuss a green space that's been designed to be both clever and versatile. I'm Chris Young, the magazine's editor. Let's start today with some Christmas cheer. One way to put a smile on your face when you're home this month is to bring some of your garden inside using cut flowers. The festive season is an ideal time to go to town with indoor flowers and foliage. As a flower arranger to the stars, Simon Lysett really knows what it takes to make a display with impact. I spoke to him to find out more. I think if you're creating your own Christmas decorations, you should really look to your garden and look to your local florist to see what there is, what's available. So always all the gorgeous evergreen foliage, obviously pine and holly, although holly can be a bit prickly to work with and the berries are never where you want them to be. But you can work with holly and pine, buried ivy is gorgeous, trails of ivy, and then all the hardy herbs such as rosemary and bay, which add wonderful fragrance, together with all the different viburnums, which have lovely flowers and some of them have spectacular berries. Some of the viburnums have beautiful fragrant flowers as well during the winter months and some of the winter flowering jasmines. Bunches of camellia will have a cheeky bud or two hiding and if you cut it early and stand it in a cool place often those buds will reward your patience by bursting into bloom unexpectedly. So you get the odd little flower nestled in amongst those gorgeous glossy leaves. So if you're using an assortment of mixed evergreens, things like eucalyptus, which is a softer bluey grey, adds a lovely tonal contrast to it, together with variegated foliage, the Eliagnus is good, some of the red robins, the rabinias, some of the fetinias, some of those plants that just add a little bit of colour contrast will give you some tonal interest. And after that, there's pine cones, there's beautiful lichen and moss-covered branches that work well, and then you add your flowers. So even if you're creating an arrangement just of evergreens, it can look utterly beautiful. And then perhaps nearer the big day, just as Christmas is arriving, you can then add in perhaps some anemones or some stems of amaryllis that you've bought from your local florist. I think at Christmas time, And especially this Christmas, we're all going to have probably a little bit more time on our hands. And we've enjoyed our gardens throughout the summer. We've enjoyed being at home. And it's a great way to celebrate being in your home and enjoying a few of the old-fashioned traditions of decorating. Just some evergreen holly and foliage popped above the picture frames looks gorgeous. Creating a garland across your mantelpiece. 
Something lovely to go in the middle of your dining table is always great, perhaps with some candles incorporated amongst it. Any excuse to add a little bit of floral fabulousness will be uplifting. And it's also a great gift to create, is to cut a bunch of lovely foliage from your garden and share it with a friend. Perhaps they don't have the foliage choice that you do, and it makes a really lovely present, a beautiful bunch of garden-gathered foliage. I'm always edited because I'm very verbose. And so whilst writing the article for The Garden, I gave lots of hints and tips. And really the detail of creating your arrangement is to just enjoy it as you're arranging. Don't worry too much about trying to replicate what I did. It doesn't need to be painting by numbers. It's much more a case of enjoying your arranging, enjoy the creating. And by using chicken wire and water rather than floral foam. It's a much more sustainable way of arranging, but it's also a much easier way to arrange. You don't have that heavy green block of foam that you need to hide. You can just let your foliage do its thing. And don't worry too much about a, a stem that wants to bend or curve in any particular direction. Just go with it. I think we've all learned since lockdown that there are lots of things we can't change and just letting your plant material arrange itself the way it wants to is certainly a really liberating way of enjoying your arranging. Self-care is really important at the moment. I think enjoying celebrating the seasons is a really important thing to do. And at the moment, supporting small independent flower growers and small independent florists on your high street is important. So show yourself some self-care this Christmas and see what your local flower shop has in that's inspiring you. And then look around your garden, look around your locality and see if you can forage a few pine cones on your walk or if there's some pretty beech masts, if you've got some lovely stems of foliage in the garden and just enjoy creating with them. It doesn't need to be something that I've created. It wants to be something that you've created and that you've enjoyed creating and that just becomes a celebration of the seasons that hopefully smells gorgeous and gives you a little floral hug on your Christmas table. On a bright, crisp, frosty morning, there's nothing more uplifting than going for a walk and immersing yourself in nature and amongst plant material. And if you can capture a little moment of that and bring it indoors during Christmas, it will do all of us a great deal of benefit for our health and well-being. And it's a great celebration of the seasons. Simon Lysett. Simon's piece isn't the only one that'll make you beam this month. We've got a story all about how schools, as part of the RHS campaign for school gardening, use the act of growing and sharing to help themselves and others during lockdown. And there really are some great examples of why horticulture is just so vital for students, not only as a way to learn, but to care and to understand about the environment around them. Along the Christmassy theme, we've got a couple of great features. One is by our regular podcast guest, Mark Diacono, who always talks growing and cooking. This month in the magazine, he's focused his attention on nuts, such as almonds, chestnuts, walnuts and so on. There's a really handy growing guide for each plant, which shows how you could be sharing nuts with your friends and family in a few years' time. The other is by the fantastic garden designer, Joe Thompson, 
you will have seen her work over the years at the Chelsea Flower Show. And if you've been lucky to visit our Rosemore Garden in North Devon, you might have come across her beautiful, cool garden. But in this issue, we asked Jo to write all about silver foliage plants, not only her selection, but also our USP, our photographic plates, where we compare different plants on the same photograph. And this not only shows the diversity of silver leaf plants, but also the tonal ranges within silver itself. One thing that makes a garden the leading horticultural magazine, for me, is our profiles on intriguing garden designs across the country. In this month's edition, we explore a plot in East London, transformed by designer Adolfo Harrison. Now, Adolfo's imaginative planting and creative solutions have turned what was previously an awkward space into a really fun family garden. I just had to speak to him to find out more about this unusual design. We decided to start with what we call a design day. So myself and a colleague, we were there measuring up and built the garden in, in a 3D model on the computer. And then with them, in one day, we kind of built up the framework and we kind of talked about, you know, what those the design principles we felt were important to introduce and so that they understood the reasons behind those. And that was key because actually there were quite a few changes throughout the process, but they always understood what we were aiming for and why we were going about it in that particular way. And it's the same with all projects. One of the most important creative elements is when you come back with the costs of the concept design. Obviously, a good concept design always <laughs> comes out over budget because yeah. you want to show that you've explored all their ideas to the full. So when they, we had to make revisions to the design to bring it back within budget they understood that we weren't kind of having to start all over again because they knew the reasons behind those principles. And so it's quite easy to kind of make changes and for them to kind of fully understand them and support them. All the concepts that are in there, they've already been very clearly articulated. So it was a really easy project to kind of let the path kind of fork wherever it needed to in order to get to that end. So, I mean, look, we, we need to be talking about some other plants and the textures you've got here, because the outstanding feature has to be these planted walls and that you've got these sort of shaggy walls, which are enveloping sort of these circles, which are either mirrors or um, windows into different parts of the garden. Where did this circular theme come from and this idea of planting up the walls? Well, I suppose there's two questions there. First of all, with the, the living walls, it was actually an idea they had already had. And... I think, you know, the architects may have suggested it and the clients liked it. And I think it's something that, funny enough, the public have actually really taken to living walls, it seems. You know, working in public projects as well, we get asked a lot to do living walls. And so our first response when people want to do a living wall is, are you sure you want to do a living wall? <laughs> do you know how much work involved? Um, it's not just the initial cost, but there's a lot of cost in the maintenance. It is a technical solution. These plants are on a life support system, but our jobs as a designer is to make it look like you know these plants have chosen to kind of arrive and settle make their home here so that's essentially where we took it so you know we always suggest to clients you know let us see how we can create a similar effect using climbers and especially you know playing around with budgets mm. obviously it's a less expensive way to do it but you know they, they were really clear they wanted to do a living wall so if they once they made that decision we then had to ensure that we didn't make it look like an off-the-shelf living wall because a lot of living wall systems that's the problem they kind of plug and play if we accept failure in a normal garden, in a normal border, but we can't in living walls because you kind of see the system and it kind of looks like it's not the perfection that, that you can... Well, actually, well, let's plan for failure. So we deliberately used seasonal plants. We used deciduous plants. We sprayed the structure in this old colour called Invisible Green. It was designed for the first conservatories. Everybody thought, well, the conservatory is there to us to grow these plants from all over the world. And, 
But pe- nobody wants to see the conservatory, they want to see the plants. So the idea, they devised this beautiful colour. It's a bit like Wimbledon green, it's a very dark green from some shades. Sometimes people think it's black. But it's a very elegant green, but when you put plants in front of it, the green disappears and it gives a real depth. Oh, wow, yes, it becomes like a shadow. Uh, it. So it's a gorgeous one. But what's quite funny is, just like all these things, conservatories was actually was so expensive that people then wanted to show off that they spent all this money <laughs> on conservatories. And that's why conservatories are white. Yeah. But anyway, so, so, you know, they've got young children. We didn't want this kind of evergreen static living wall. So we, we wanted the children to be able to see the seasons change. Because in London, you don't really notice much change in the season. So we wanted to tr- uh, use the plants that we would have used on the ground in the living wall. And one of the things I've learned from the Patrick Blanc original ones is he's used plants that kind of really arched out towards the light. And that's when they become a bit more interesting, when they're not flat. So we've used fuchsias and even put aces in there and tetrapanax and fancy green fingers, you know, plants that you wouldn't normally associate with that, but they kind of, you know, they'll really kind of find their own way. I, I want to understand also more about this circular concept of these windows or these mirrors and things well where did that come from was that a requirement from the client or was that part of your design creative process in terms of these circles which seem to be bordered by sort of timber frames yeah no it came from the clients actually the client is a fan of uh, jack tati the french comedian from the silent films from the 60s 70s and he, he did this great film called Mononcle. it's kind of a critique of the modern city but they have this perfect modernist house and it's quite funny you know, the house is almost like a creature you have these two round windows and as the as people pop in and out it looks like eyes oh, okay. left and right we were talking about that and we just thought you know why can't we introduce those into this so very quickly it became one of the eyes or windows whichever you look at it is accessible from the garden and is a bench that you see from the garden but has a mirror behind it and the other is in a Wendy house that we've created that's is a bench that you have to go into the Wendy house and you can sit in it there. So the kids can kind of sit in them almost like kind of door mice whilst they kind of read. And then the other idea that they were talking about is the wife, uh, she's a big fan of uh, Studio Ghibli anime. You know, he's a Japanese filmmaker did Spirited Away uh, films like that. And they always use a particular kind of palette and there's always this pink that's used. So she was a real fan of that pink. So we use the door of the Wendy house to become like the nose between the two eyes to create a face what was this basically problem corner in the garden where everything was going into this triangular shape becomes something that's actually kind of giving back and kind of reflecting back on the on the space when viewed from the house. And is there something, as you look back on it now, and it's been featured in other magazines and it's won awards, and it's great that we've now got it into our um, December issue, but is there anything that you kind of have learned from it or would take away for your next job? I've really, really enjoyed not just working with the clients, but bringing their children into the design process and that's actually what I found is it's kind of liberated the design process to be more playful I think people see a lot of serious gardens and so we expect gardens to be you know seriously designed whereas actually when they have children they accept that actually maybe things could be a bit more playful what's interesting about playfulness in a garden is it's the same for adults it's just you know rather than running around they're using their eyes to run around so if nobody knows they wouldn't know that we've designed the garden for children as well it looks like a perfectly feasible adult serious garden but within there we've designed for both and usually it allows us to kind of get away with things we found that we would normally be able to get away with people do anything for their kids won't they adolfo harrison you really do need to see the garden to believe it the richard bloom photographs really show it off so well it's intriguing imaginative and meets the client's expectations and to me that sounds like pretty good garden design 
A part of the magazine that I always find really interesting is our column section, where great garden writers grace our pages with their thoughts on various green subjects. They really do make you think and they really make you empathise with plants and gardens. Author and journalist Leonine Dertz, who's been writing for us for more than 10 years, is one of those columnists. And she spent the last year penning her thoughts about health and well-being in the garden, a subject close to many gardeners' hearts. I spoke to her to get her reflections about the column and what she's learned from writing it. This year, my column has been all about health and the garden. So sort of every aspect of health and how the garden can impact upon it and mental health and physical health and all of that sort of thing. And it's been an interesting year to write about health in the garden, I think. My garden is not huge at all. I live in Bristol and it's about 80 foot, I think, in old money. We have sort of divided it into three bits, really. Just outside the kitchen door, we've made a kind of veranda, covered veranda. There we have plants like aeoniums and scented geraniums and a huge jasmine as well, which is rather wonderful, and lilies and things like that. We then go down the steps from there and there's a roundish lawn with little mini box hedges and some planting. My husband really likes big subtropical plants, so we've got a couple of polonias, which take up about half the garden between them, and some euphorbias and a banana. And then the back bit of the garden is quite new. It was a kind of wasteland until quite recently. We had a huge old asbestos shed that we ignored for years because we couldn't face getting the people in to get it done properly. Finally got rid of it, cleared that space and had some people in to make a vegetable garden there. So we have our greenhouse there and some vegetable beds. That's the, the extent of the garden, these three lovely bits. I just really came to appreciate it as a space rather than as something that needed doing. Writing the column at the same time did also give me this kind of new perspective in that I was suddenly looking at, well, what do I have that is scented and what am I getting from those scents? And that was something I was able to explore in the column. Why do we love particular scents? And why do some really appeal to us? Why do some really relax us or help us to sleep or help our memory? And and so I suddenly realised, well, actually, I do have quite a lot of these things already and perhaps there's more that I can do to you know enhance that and bring in other things and then thinking about you know the bird song you know we feed the birds and we have made it quite a nice because we've got a big thick privet hedge on one side it's a pretty bird friendly garden and it's got trees and things so thinking about that and how much joy that gives me actually and and what that does to me it was really interesting to learn about that and you know as I was going along and and, you know, trying to find out more and more for the column. The impact on my mental health for the garden this year has really been in space, in 
being able to step outside, being able to step away from the news, from, you know, what's going on on the phone, and also, you know, from each other, much as we all love each other very much, you know, there is a time when we just need to have that little bit of space, and, and that has given, given us that. I think this year really brought home to me how hard it can be to not have a garden. We, when we were at the height of lockdown and I was very aware that there are lots of people who, particularly if you've got young kids, were stuck in flats without gardens or houses without gardens. Having some kind of access to green space, I think, is just so important. I mean, for all of us, really, not just for kids. I do force the teenagers out sometimes. But, you know, for all of us, we do need to have some kind of access. And it's been so clear, it just felt so clear this year how important that was. Leah Leendert. For me, Leah is one of the most sensitive and beautiful writers around. It was a natural commission for me to ask her to bring her take on health and well-being into the monthly column for us. And do read her columns. They show not only the science behind health and well-being, we know for a fact that gardens are good for people, but also the human need to have outside space and connection with nature. And that's it for this month's show already. Gosh, how time flies. For more on everything in this episode, head to rhs.org.uk forward slash the garden podcast. By the way, at the RHS, we've decided to shift all of our podcasts to one easy to find place. Come February, I'll be talking about the magazine regularly on our Gardening with the RHS podcast. So if you're not already subscribed, do that now, as we'll be combining the feeds in the new year. But until then, goodbye from me, Chris Young. Chris Young.